Paulson, and I've been going to Emmanuel for 26 or so years. Um, my family um, and I have found a great family in Emmanuel. Uh, if I had to think about one principle that uh, God has put on my heart, uh, would have to be that God uses ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances to accomplish amazing things. If anybody would have told me 20 years ago that I had to have an international platform to reach people for Christ, I would never have believed them. You know, John 16:33 talks about um, Jesus' words where he says, in this world there will be trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And certainly, 50-ish years ago, God had a plan. He knit me together in my mother's womb as an ordinary person. 40 years ago, he fought Satan um, as Satan tried to convince me I wasn't worthwhile and I should take my life. 30 years ago, he introduced me to my husband, the person that he had made for me um, and Lad and I together, two ordinary people, set off into ordinary circumstances. 15 years ago, God held me in his arms in ICU while I'd fought for his life. Extraordinary circumstances and ordinary people that God was going to use in a way that we never could imagine. Seven years ago, he took that story and introduced us to Hunting for Heroes, a whole bunch of ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. Law enforcement officers that have been critically injured protecting and serving communities across the country and across the world. And he gave us a platform to reach them, to love on them, to encourage them. Five years ago, God said, I want you to take this platform and create a marriage retreat, to come together, to study God's word, to be encouraged, and to find a new family. And I don't know what God's gonna do with that from this point forward, but I do know it's an honor and a privilege to walk with him as an ordinary person as he accomplishes amazing things. Amen. What a, uh, thank you, Heidi. Thank you, Lad. I, loved, I love this principle, this principle where we understand that God takes ordinary people puts them in extraordinary circumstances and then does amazing, miraculous things with them. And, uh, and that's a biblical principle. You can see it all through Scripture. And that's the kind of principle we want to live by. So that's what we're doing right now. We're in a series entitled Principles for Living. And each week you'll, you'll hear uh, a testimony from somebody in our own church family. It says, here's, here's a principle I figured out from God's Word. And then we'll turn to a biblical character, an example in the Bible, and we'll learn some more principles for living. And this morning, I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. Last week, we looked at Joseph, the Joseph principles, and we discovered something about this amazing man. There's more written about Joseph in the book of Genesis than any other person, more than Abraham, more than Isaac, more than Jacob, there's more written about Joseph, and God has something there he wants us to learn. When the story of Joseph ends, the story of Moses begins. In fact, if you've got your Bible, 
open to the first chapter of Exodus, look at the last verse of Genesis. The last verse of Genesis says, So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They they embalmed him, and they put him in a coffin in Egypt. By the way, later they would take his bones all the way back to Israel because he, he left instruction. He said, God's going to come. He's going to deliver you from Egypt and take you. He said, take my bones with you when you go. But Exodus is a different story. Exodus chapter 1, find verse 8. It says, Now there arose a new king in Egypt who did not know Joseph. Joseph was uh, famous for a long, long time. I mean, what he did was he, he kept Egypt as the world's greatest power because all during this worldwide famine for seven years, no, nobody had any grain. Nobody had any way to feed themselves. And everybody had to go to Egypt. And the whole world was beholden to Egypt. And that, in fact, that's what happened to Jacob and his family. They came to Egypt, and that's why God sent Joseph ahead of them. And we, and we looked at that story last week. But now things change in Egypt. A lot of years have passed, and there's a new Pharaoh. And this Pharaoh doesn't remember the fame of Joseph. He doesn't remember that Joseph was an Israelite, and he doesn't remember and look kindly on the relationship, the ally relationship between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And so this Pharaoh gets together all of his advisors, and he goes, I think we have a problem. If we ever go to war with another nation, and the Israelites side against us, they will wipe us out. There's more of them than there are us. And so they decide they're going to take care of this Israelite population problem. And uh, at the same time, the, the king of Egypt, who's called Pharaoh, they decide, let's enslave the Israelites so that we make sure that we can oppress them and keep them down. So all the Israelites become slaves. They are all building the cities for Pharaoh. And some of that some of those cities, some of that architecture is still found today and uncovered by archaeologists. So we know all of this is true. All of this happened exactly the way the, way the Bible said it happened. But the king said, uh, we've we got to stop the population problem. So he brings in the two uh, women who are in charge of all the maternity stuff, all the midwives of all of Israel. And he says, here's what I want you to do. If it's a girl baby, you can let her live. If it's a boy baby, I want you to kill him. Well, the midwives didn't do that. Uh, they believed what God believes in the sanctity of life. There's a message there to be preached. What, what does God think about life, and what does he believe about life? And so they didn't do it. Well, Pharaoh called them back, and he said, How come? He said, How come you didn't do what I said? And they said, Well, he said, they said, The Israelite women aren't like the Egyptian women, implying that the Egyptian women are kind of soft and pampered. They said, the Israelite women, are they're tough. When they have babies, they have babies before. They, they don't even call midwives. They have babies before we even get there. And so we haven't been able to do it. So Pharaoh just passes a law, and he tells everybody, if you have a baby boy, you have to kill him. Well, uh, as the story goes, a guy from the tribe of Levi finds a girl that he likes. He thinks she's pretty. She thinks he's handsome. They fall in love, and they have a baby. And it's a baby boy. And she can't kill this baby boy. And so they hide him. And they hide him for three months. Now all of you mothers here, imagine hiding a baby from everybody that you know for three months. How do you do that? I mean, there's like a couple things involved there. One is that you had a baby. I mean, you were were out to here, and everybody says, 
oh, did you have a baby? And you're hiding the baby, so you say no. And they go, wow, that weight loss is phenomenal. Um, but uh, she's hiding this baby. By the way, this baby's name is Moses. And at three months, uh, she can't hide him any longer. How, I don't even know how you hide a baby that long. Isn't it incredible that that sweet little thing that's only this big has full-grown lungs? I mean, how do you hide a baby? So finally they said, we can't hide the baby any longer. So they make a basket. They make sure it's waterproof. They put Moses in it. They wait for Pharaoh's daughter to come down to bathe in the Nile. They push the little basket out that direction. The Bible says the baby was crying. One of the servant girls grabs the basket. They open the lid, and Pharaoh's daughter's heart loves this baby. She falls in love with this baby. God does that work in her heart. And Miriam, Moses' older sister, has been watching everything. She runs up to Pharaoh's daughter and she says, shall I get uh, one of the Israelite women to nurse the baby for you? And she says, yeah, do that for me. Now who would Miriam get to nurse Moses? His mom. And Pharaoh says, I'll pay you. Pharaoh's daughter said, I'll pay you to nurse the boy for me, and you keep him till he's grown, and then you bring him. So God arranged it so that Pharaoh's daughter paid Moses' mom to nurse her own very son. When he was older, he went to live in Pharaoh's house. He grew up and was educated as an Egyptian and with the very best education that Egypt had to offer. But also when he was older, he found himself conflicted. He knew he was a Hebrew, but he was living as an Egyptian. And in chapter 2, just flip over to chapter 2, verse 11, it says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. And he looked this way, and he looked that way, and seeing no one, He struck down the Egyptian. That that means he murdered him. He killed him. And he hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why did you strike your companion? And he said, Who made you a prince or a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And then Moses was afraid. And he thought, Surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses. And Moses fled from Pharaoh. In fact, he went to the backside of the desert. He went to Midian, and he became a shepherd. He ran away from his family. He went. He ran away from his upbringing. He ran away from his own uh, nationality. He ran away from his education. He ran away from God and God's plan for him. And he went, and he was gone for like 40 years. And we learn something about this moment when Moses murdered this man. Here's the first principle this morning trying to do the right thing, because was, he was truly trying to do the right thing. The people of Israel were oppressed, they're abused, they're enslaved, they were beaten, trying to do the right thing the wrong way. He just murdered the guy. Is the same as trying to do the wrong thing the right way. And how are they the same? It's still wrong. H- have you thought about wrong and right in your life? If you've never given it any thought, you should. Because you might be doing wrong and, and you can't figure out why you don't have the blessing of God. And it's because you haven't ever given this some thought. You see, there's the action, and the action has to be determined to be right or wrong. And then there's the attitude, and the attitude has to be determined to be right or wrong. And Jesus talks about this on the Sermon on the Mount. This is where he says, oh, you think you're good because you've never committed adultery. And he says, I want you to know adultery is wrong 
But the attitude of lust is equally wrong. You, you think you're doing fine because you've never murdered anybody. He said, I want you to know the attitude of hate is equal to the action of murder. You think you're good because you've never stolen from anybody, but covetousness is the same as stealing. And so what we discover is there's the wrong way to do wrong, wrong action, and wrong attitude. There's the wrong way to do right, wrong action, or or, or, or wrong uh, wrong attitude, right action. There's the right way to do wrong, right action, wrong attitude. Am I getting this right? But the only way to do it right is to do the right thing with the right attitude. Every parent instinctively knows this. The Bible says to our children, they are to obey their parents, that's the action, and they are to honor their parents, that's the attitude. Have you ever said to your kids, hey, I told you, and now I'm serious, go and clean your room. And they're so mad at you, they stomp all the way down the hallway, get the bedroom door, wham! Now they clean their room. Are you pleased with that? No, because the attitude betrays the heart. And so we learn this from Moses. Moses sees the slavery. He sees the oppression. He sees the injustice. He knows he he needs to do something about it. Murder was the wrong thing. And so we learn this. What God wants is the right action and the right heart attitude. We learn this from Moses. Well, um... We learn something else here in chapter 2. And part of this is about Moses, but part of this is about what God is doing with the children of Israel. The end of chapter 2, verse 23, it says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died. That was the one who didn't know who Joseph was. And then his son would become Pharaoh. Probably uh, a young man that Moses grew up with who received the same education that Moses did in Pharaoh's house. And the scripture says, The people of Israel groaned. Because of their slavery, they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. It's a prayer. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And in my Bible, the last three words are underlined. And God knew. This is what I want to say to you this morning. God knows. You might be here and no one else knows the burden that you're carrying. Maybe not your spouse, maybe not your kids, but God knows. You might be here and, and you've got anxiety. I mean, you, you, are, you are concerned, you are fearful and worried about something. I want you to know God knows what it is. Maybe you've got some difficulties in your life and you haven't told a soul. God knows. In fact, here's the second principle from this story of Moses. The eternal, omniscient, that means he's everywhere at once, almighty God cares about the smallest details of your life. Um, Some of you actually struggle coming to church on any given Sunday. And the reason you struggle is because you don't know if God really cares about you. I mean, you know, God's probably in charge of Israel because those are his chosen people. And the world events of whether or not Iran has a missile that can reach Israel. And, and, and maybe the big work of the Great Commission that missionaries are doing. But you're just a regular guy. You're just a regular gal. You're just a, what did Heidi just say in her testimony? Ordinary person. But her testimony reminds us 
that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things, and God cares about what we would even say are the trivial details of your life. This is what I believe. I believe God loves you as if you were the only one on the planet. I believe that God would have sent his son to die for you if you were the only one that sinned. I believe that God hears your prayer when you pray like you're the only one praying on the planet. God cares about you. This eternal, no no beginning and no end, omniscient, everywhere at once, almighty, has all the power of the universe. This God cares about every single part of your life. The scripture calls it steadfast love. We call it unconditional love, sometimes agape love. He loves you with that love. That's what I want you to see. I want you to know that. I want you to carry that. It will change the way you live. It will change what, how you see yourself because now you know how God sees you. He hears your prayers. He knows the situation you're in. You say, well, I'm, I'm groaning. I'm struggling. I'm crying out. God knows, and he has a plan for your life. Well, God's plan for Israel was to send Moses back as their deliverer. Moses was probably supposed to be their deliverer all along, but he murdered this guy, and he might have delayed it by 40 years. But he's in the backside of the desert. He's a shepherd. He's got goats. He's got sheep. And God's got to get his attention. And so the Scripture says that one day he's attending to the flock, and there's, there's a bush, and it's burning. I don't know if lightning struck it. Supernatural fire, though, because the Scripture says it burns and it burns and it burns, but it doesn't burn up the bush. It's a burning bush that never ends. And at some point, Moses goes, i got to go look at this. And when he gets close, a voice calls to him out of the burning bush and says, Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And then God begins to share with Moses his plan for delivering the people of Israel. Now, God's plan is to send Moses back as their deliverer. But Moses has a problem with that plan. In fact, all of chapter 3 and even into 4 is Moses giving God all his excuses of why he can't go back. The conversation goes something like this. God, I don't know if you know, but I'm a wanted man there. God, I don't know if you know this, but I'm kind of persona non grata there. God, I I don't think anybody's really going to believe me. God, I I don't know your name. They're going to ask me what your name is. And this is that great passage in chapter 3, verse 14, where God says, tell them that my name is I am that I am. So Moses, finally, his last excuse, he says, I I don't talk good. I mean, when I stand up in front of people, my tongue gets all thick, and the thlava in my mouth goes to the palm of my hand. And God Literally, the passage says, God gets angry with Moses. And he says, who made man's mouth? Who who makes man's eyes so that he can see? Who, who, Who creates man? Who's in charge of all of this? And so finally, Moses agrees to go. And we learn something from this conversation where Moses makes an excuse And God gives an answer. And we learn something from what happens in Moses' life where God comes through for him time after time after time after time. Here's the principle number three. What God calls you to do, God equips you to do. Think about it. Now, this this principle is for believers. If you're here and you're not a believer, 
the, the first answering, the first call of God on your life is for you to give your life to him, to ask Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and ask him to come into your heart and your life. But believer, you know now that God didn't call us to sit. He calls us to serve. This moment where we're all sitting here, this is like halftime. We've, we've been in the world. We're living for Christ, but the world's working against us, and we're struggling, and we come in here, and this is where we make halftime adjustments. The, the team that wins the Super Bowl this afternoon may well be the team that makes the best halftime adjustments. Listen for that phrase. They'll talk about it. This is us. We've come back into the locker room called Emmanuel. We've opened the playbook called the Bible. We're listening to the coach. That's the Lord Jesus. And he's speaking to us about how we're going to go back out in the world. The problem is, some of us don't want to go back out. God didn't call you to sit. He called you to serve. He will call you to do something. The problem is, we're afraid what God's going to call us to do. Like Moses, we've all made excuses, haven't we? We're afraid, Lord, if I, if I, get, Lord, if you, if I just tell you, you can have my life and you can do anything, you, you might ask me to go to outer Mongolia and marry an ugly man. Or we think, oh, it might be worse than that. You might ask me to serve in the nursery. It might be worse than that. You might call me to work with junior high boys. <gasps> I'm looking at some here. I just love them from a distance, but I love them. And so we find ourselves making excuses like Moses. And sometimes our excuses are, well, I, I, don't, I don't speak well. I don't... I, I can't stand in front of people. I, I don't know God's word. I, I, I can't do this. I, my schedule doesn't fit. I, I can't give. I don't have enough money. We, I have all these excuses. And I, I want to tell you something because it's happened in my life. When you make excuse and you make excuse and you make excuse, just like Moses, sometimes you do get to the place where God gets angry. Now, it's, it's a loving anger. The scripture says, whom God loves, he disciplines. But the discipline of God can come. If you don't realize, here's the New Testament part of this principle. God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. What God calls you to do, he will equip you to do. And all the rest of the life of Moses is a testimony to that fact. Well, Moses goes back to see Pharaoh, chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Moses and Aaron went to see Pharaoh. They said, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may go hold a feast for me in the wilderness. Pharaoh says, verse 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I, I, I don't know the Lord. Why should I let, people, let Israel go? And so I'm not going to do it. Two phrases there. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Now, uh, for us to think, for Moses to think, that God called him, and God's going to equip him, that that means clear sailing and there won't be any conflict and there won't be any problems, that's naive. That's, that's immature spiritual thinking. Because there's another principle at work here. Principle number four. We live in a fallen world. You know that, don't you? Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, we're all sinners, and the, and the cumulative effect of seven billion sinners is a fallen world, and this world that wants to do what they want to do, they want to do the wrong thing with the wrong motive, means that they don't regard the Lord. They don't care about what God has to say. The reason that there's so many empty chairs in here is they have no interest in the teaching of God's Word. 
That's not what they want for their lives. They want to be free to do what they want to do. So you, Christian, should expect sin. Isn't it silly? And it happens to us, though. We, we kind of start expecting heaven on earth. Let's make this clear. Heaven is in heaven. The earth is full of iniquity. The earth is a wicked place. The earth is a fallen place. And what do sinners do? Sinners sin. It's incredible. People, this is what people say. You won't believe what happened to me. And then they tell you a story that somebody sinned against them. Isn't that always funny? You want to say, why wouldn't I believe that? That's what happens to everybody every day. We're all sinned against constantly. People gossip about you. They will stab you in the back. People will come and steal from you. People uh, will slander you. People will take from you. That's what the world does. And yet sometimes we're surprised that this isn't a heavenly place. The Bible uses two illustrations that are not pretty, but it speaks of the world and the, and the sinners of the world and says, a pig returns to the mud, a dog returns to his vomit. It's a fallen world. This isn't heaven yet. It's a sinful place. You should expect sin. Now listen, I'm not done with the, with the principle yet. And when you choose to be obedient and not sin, you should expect conflict and resistance. If in this fallen world full of sin, you decide not to sin, the sinners will hate you for it. Here's a very simple illustration. Uh, there's a guy in my church. This is what he told me happens to him. He, uh, he has a job where uh, in the, the first part of the shift, you get 15 minutes for coffee. Later, you have lunch. And then in the last part of the shift, you get 15 minutes for coffee. He said all the workers take 30 So they all take 30 minutes. He said he knows that that's stealing from his boss, and they're supposed to take 15. So he takes 15, and when he only takes 15, they get mad at him. Do you know why? Because his obedience shows their sinfulness. Now, it's a simple illustration, but it's true of everything that you can think of. The world that chooses itself and selfishness and sin and wickedness hates it when you choose to be obedient to God, and it brings you into conflict with them. And Moses' conflict with Pharaoh proves the point, doesn't it? In fact, in fact, Pharaoh proves another point. This isn't in the sermon, so I'm just going to give you this for free, okay? Have you ever had God tell you to do something, and you didn't do it? So what does God do? He starts to bring some pain and adversity in your life, and then you have that pain and adversity, and when he squeezes you enough, what do you say? Okay, God, I'll do it. And so God lets go of the vice of the adversity, and then what do we do? No, I'm not going to do it. So God brings it again. Okay, God, I'll do it. And then God lets go of you, and you, go, you, do, you say, oh, I'm not going to do it. And in Pharaoh's case, it was ten times. How many times has it been in your life? God's calling you. He's asking you. I want you to do this. I'm not going to do it. And so he brings that, that adversity into your life. And then when it's too tight, okay, God, I'll do it. But as soon as he lets go, oh, I don't think I'm going to do it. It's a picture of our humanity. Well, um, some of you can't believe that I'm going to get done this early because I only have one point left. But the last point has four subpoints, so don't worry, okay? Turn with me all the way to Exodus 33. Now, here's what I don't have time to do. The life of Moses has dozens and dozens of principles in it. But we don't have time for those. 
But I want you to see Exodus 33. I want you to see one last thing. It's a conversation between Moses and God, and it's a wonderful conversation. I hope that you'll take the time to read it sometime. It begins in uh, about verse 12. Um, But what I'm going to do is I'm just going to tell you the conversation here. So here's the way it goes. Moses is asking God for some things, and God wants to give those things to Moses. And so it's kind of a fun conversation. It's all positive. The first thing that Moses asked for, he says, God, I need your favor. I, I want to have your favor. And, and God says, I want you to have my favor. I, in fact, uh, here, let's see if I can call your attention to it here. I'm in chapter 33, very, very last phrase of verse 12. God says to Moses, I know you by name. You see, you're not just a social security number in heaven. And you have also found favor in my sight. In fact, that word favor appears uh, five times in that passage. So it's a big deal. Now, we actually looked at uh, this principle last week with Joseph. Remember the Joseph principle is the favor of God is more important than the circumstances of the world. So, So Moses wants the favor means the blessing of God. How many of you here this morning would say, you'd indicate by the uplifted hand, I want the blessing of God in my life. You'd lift your hand and say, that's what I want. That's why you're here, isn't it? The reason you come here is you want to hear the teaching of the Word of God. You want to hear the Holy Spirit because you want the blessing of God. Well, here's the news that I have for you. God wants to give you His favor. God desires to show you His favor. So if you don't have the favor of God, it's not because God doesn't want to give it. God wants to give you His favor. If you don't have the favor of God, you haven't put yourself in alignment with God to receive his favor. Choose obedience. Choose listening to his call, reading his word. Choose God. Love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. God is waiting, desiring to give you that blessing that you want to have. That's the first thing we learn in Exodus 33. The second thing that Moses asked for is God's presence. Uh, Look in verse 14. God says, my presence will go with you. And Moses wants the presence of God. He says, you've called me to lead this people. Please do not leave me alone. These people are stiff-necked and stubborn and hard to work with. How many of you work with people and you you find all that to be true? Yeah. People are hard to work with. You should try pastoring. Oh, man. So, So Moses says, I can't do it if I don't have your presence. Now, he's asking for a special presence, but it's because he's an Old Testament saint. You and I live on this side of the cross. And guess what Jesus says to us? He says, I will send you my Holy Spirit, the helper, the comforter. And the reason I'm going to uh, ascend back to the throne of heaven is so I can send you my Holy Spirit. And every single one of you is a temple of of the Holy Spirit, and when we all go from this place, and we get in our cars, and we scatter all over, every single one of you will have the presence of God. You know what he says about that? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Imagine, that's your presence. That's, that's your promise as a New Testament Christian to have the presence of God. Moses is asking for stuff. God even gives him something he didn't ask for. In verse 14, he says, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. 
Uh, the word rest there, kind of archaic word, a Hebraic word, the word we would use in modern English language is peace. Now, some of you are here this morning, and, and you have heavy burdens. Some of you are here this morning, and you have big worries. Some of you have fears that you can't overcome. Some of you are under stress. There are deadlines at your work and things you've got to get done, and you are under the gun. And you need, this is what Jesus calls it in the New Testament, the peace that passes all understanding. Do you know what? God wants to give you that peace. That peace isn't somewhere up in a locked box found only by the super saint who climbs a spiritual Mount Everest to find it there. It's it's a gift that God's waiting to give you. If you'll receive Christ, if you'll receive peace with God, the peace of God, and the peace that he means for your relationships as well. So Moses gets the favor of God, he gets the presence of God, and he gets the peace of God. Now, uh, see if something like this has ever happened to you with your kids. Uh, your kids ever come to you, and they're going to ask you for something, and they, and they kind of think you might say no. But they ask for it, and you don't say no, you say yes. And they're, and they're pretty thrilled about that. So what do kids do? They ask for something else. Because you just say yes, they think, oh, this is a good day, right? And you say yes again. And so they ask for a third thing. And you say yes. And now they're thinking, I'm going to swing for the fences. And they ask you, like, can I have the car? And then you say, no. That's what happened with Moses. Moses said, can I have your favor? And God said, I'm giving you my favor. Five times he says that. He says, can I have your presence? I can't go without your presence. And God says, my presence will be with you. God says, I'm going to give you peace. Even though you have to work with all these people, I'm going to give you peace. Moses says, can I see your glory? And God says, no. God says this to Moses. He says, to tell you what I'll do. He said, the reason you can't see my glory, he said, it would kill you. He said, but I'll tell you what I'll do. He said, you're, he, Moses was up where he got the Ten Commandments. He was in the mountains. He was in the clef, uh, cliffs. And he said, I want to put you in the cleft of the rock. It's, a, it's just a little corner of the cliff, like putting a kid in timeout, right? So he said, I'm going to put you in the corner like this. He said, then I'm going to put my hand over you. So you're in the corner. Turn, close your eyes. I'm going to put my hand over you. And then God says, I'm going to go by in all of my glory. I'll go by, but my hand's going to cover you. Don't look. I'm going to go by in all my glory. And when I get all the way by, I'll let my hand go. And you can open your eyes and turn around. And you can see the residue of my glory. That's what he does for Moses. Once again, Moses was in the Old Testament. You know what we find in the New Testament? John, the last living apostle, who writes the last gospel, says in John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory. Even the glory of the one and only, of the begotten, full of grace and full of truth. When did John see the glory? Because when Jesus was here, His glory was veiled. When did John behold His glory? Well, we know when it happened. It only happened once. Only one time that Jesus let his glory shine through. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. Only three people saw it. It was Peter, James, and John. He took them up on a high mountain. And the scripture says he was 
And this is the best word we have for this. He was transfigured. Uh, they said his, even his clothes were like lightning. It was too bright. It was too hard to see. It was too much. Jesus was in his glory. And they bowed down. They couldn't see it. And the scripture says, two men from heaven appeared there with him. Elijah and Moses. Moses got what he asked for. His prayer was answered. He got to see God in all of his glory. And the scripture says they were all there together. And Peter and James and John, they couldn't see. And then all of a sudden, Elijah and Moses were gone. And Jesus' glory was veiled again. And he told them later, he said, don't tell anybody about this until later. And John wrote about it later. And we beheld his glory. Here's the most incredible thing for you. I told you, God wants to show you his favor. He does. God's presence is with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. The peace of God is yours if you will receive it. And God wants to show you his glory. He does it in little ways, like when Heidi said, when ordinary people are put in extraordinary circumstances and God does amazing, miraculous things. But also... we're headed to glory. We've been justified. We're now sanctified. And we're waiting to be glorified. And there'll be that day when you pass through the veil of death or when the Lord comes to get us all on the rapture day because he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. And no longer is he Jesus, the Lamb of God, who is veiled in his glory. Now he's Jesus, the Son of God, who's the judge of all the universe, who comes in his glory and will be a part of that. God wants you to know his glory. I want to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. Is it possible that you're here this morning and you're here and you're listening to these principles for living, but you know they're not really for you because you haven't given your life to Christ yet. That's the beginning place for you. You know, this morning you could change all of that. This morning could be the time and the place where you give your life to Christ. It's a simple prayer. You could pray it in your heart as I pray it out loud. It would go something like this. Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I think about my sin all the time. And I want you, I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin. I know that's why Jesus came and died on the cross, to pay for my sins. And from this day forward, the best that I know how, I will live for you. And the Bible says that if with a sincere heart and a true attitude, you've asked Jesus to forgive your sins and come into your life and be the Lord of your life, the Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And and today can be the day when your life is changed. Most of you in this room are believers. If you're here and you're a believer, is it possible that you're living your life using other principles that aren't even true or the world's principles that are false. And now God is speaking to you and he's saying, these are my principles. This is what life is really about. This is how you live your life. You heard Joseph last week. You heard about Moses. You heard Tate from our own congregation last week. You heard from Heidi. Isn't it time you start living the life that God wants you to live? Maybe one of those principles just leaped off the pages of your Bible and you know that one's for me right now will you rededicate yourself will you ask God to do that work in your life Father you know our lives you know everything about us every burden, every worry, every fear every stress, 
You know, everything about us, our relationships, our ups, our downs, our habits, good and bad, you know everything about us. We come before you naked and exposed. And we ask you to do the work that only you can do. The forgiveness of sins. And to change our hearts and lives and mold us and make us as Christians and believers into the image of your Son, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Father, do this for us for your glory. For we pray it in the most precious name of your Son. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.